Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're pleased to welcome Marissa Tremblay, Assistant Professor here in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue University. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we appreciate it. And it's not the first time you've been on our, is it a show? Yeah, I think it's a show. Yeah. Well, it's back in the old days when it was just the audio. Pre-video. Yeah. 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 yeah, you're like one of our... In the like what do you call first, it? Season. first season, first season, so we're yeah. yeah, it was even pre pandemic, I think it was. Yeah, we were across, yeah, right over in my office, really crammed in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all talking around a microphone. So we've grown up and we've expanded. Cool, glad to be so back. The world yeah. gets to, to see you, and which is what's really cool, they get to hear about the cool stuff you're doing, yes. And so that's what we wanted to hear about is, I don't know, it's, I think we're small time compared to what you've probably been on, like the world's contacting you. <laughs> no, 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 not the world. But Purdue did a really good job getting press out there to get people interested in, in Antarctica. So, yeah, yeah. So what's happening in Antarctica? What is happening? Well, why, why was I there? Yes. Or, yeah, so, um, so I actually had a project funded by the National Science Foundation, which is a government agency here in the U.S. US. Um, and we were funded in March 2020. <laughs> so we have been planning to go to Antarctica for a really long time, oh, but because wow. of the pandemic, haven't been able to go. Um, but we wanted to go to Antarctica to collect some uh, rock samples. Um, and these rock samples are special for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that we were really interested in getting these particular samples is that they've been sitting at the Earth's surface for a really long time. So they're from this part of Antarctica called the McMurdo Dry Valleys. It's very dry and also very cold. And it's one of the most slowly evolving places on Earth in terms of how quickly the surfaces are eroding. Um, and so that means that rocks that are sitting there today have basically been sitting there for millions and millions of years. Yeah. When, when, uh, when you say dry, I, when I think of Antarctica, I think it's probably like snow-covered and polar bears. No How many misconceptions <laughs> can I throw at you right So, now? no polar bears in Antarctica. Um, and we did see some wildlife, so we did see uh, some penguins, but only from, from the air when we were in a helicopter. Um, and we did also see uh, seals. Uh, oh. But, um, yeah, no. And uh, basically these birds, they're kind of like seagulls, but they're called skuas. Yeah, but not a lot is living down there. Okay. Um, so, yeah, the dry valleys are not ice covered, that's another unique thing about them. So most of Antarctica is obviously covered in a, in a big ice sheet, but this part of Antarctica, um, there is no ice in the valleys. I did not know that I existed. I didn't know that yeah. yeah. It's not a huge area, but yeah, it's this kind of ice-free area, and it's also very dry, um, which uh, was useful from our perspective, because it means it keeps things, everything, everything really slow. Yeah. So no, it, any, but it's still really cold. Yeah, and ground yeah. cover or anything, or is it just kind of bare? No vegetation. No vegetation. Um, in terms of like life, there are these things called cryptoendolithic lichen uh, that actually live in the surface or just below the surface of the rock. 
Um, that's actually one of the things that you can look for to tell that a surface is eroding really slowly is if you find these lichens. So basically the rocks will look like a little green if you kind of get below the surface. That's a good indication that things are really, really slow in that particular location. Below the surface of the rock? Uh, like, like millimeters below the surface. So very close to the surface, but not like, not like coating the surface. So they're like in the pores type thing? Mm -hmm. Is it pour okay. Yeah, yeah. It, I wouldn't think that'd be a great place to live. No. <laughs> and there, there's other, there is other microbial life. For example, in, there are these like lakes in the dry valleys, these small lakes that um, are uh, fed by ephemeral streams. And those lakes also have biology in them. And there are biologists that go and study those lakes. I'm not one of them, but yeah. Okay, what about wind and stuff like that? I mean, aren't yeah. they still, yeah. isn't there still erosion and it, weathering of the rock? Yeah, it is very windy there, um, but you would need to, you know, generate particles that could then get carried by the wind. And so there are these actually very strong winds that blow off the ice sheet into the dry valleys. Um, they're called catabatic winds, so they're basically driven by gravity, kind of, and they flow off of the ice sheet. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a very, very slowly eroding place. You, water is sort of the key ingredient that you need to make things go fast, and that's, uh, that's missing. Yeah. It, it doesn't, like, precipitate there? Not much precipitation there in that area? Not really a lot. Um, it did snow when we were um, out in the field, but the snow, uh, there's not very much of it, and it sublimates, so it just goes back into being a gas. It doesn't really melt. So you only get surface water, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So is that wow. considered a desert? It is a desert, yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. it is considered, okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So what about these rock like what qualities of the rocks are you are you looking at or researching? So we wanted these samples that have been sitting at the surface for a really long time because that means that they've been exposed to these things called cosmic rays, um, which we talked about on my last yeah. episode, but I can uh, talk about them again. So the Earth is constantly being bombarded from these high energy particles that ultimately originate from supernova explosions. Um, and some of them, they're really high energy and they can make it to the Earth um, and they can penetrate through the Earth's magnetic field and atmosphere. And if they, um, you know, if they can eventually interact with rocks at the Earth's surface, they will um, induce these nuclear reactions to take place and basically transform an atom of one element into an atom of a different element. And so we're looking for these atoms that are produced by this very, very rare process. Um, but this process only happens at the Earth's surface. So once you go a few meters below the surface, all of those cosmic rays have basically um, been slowed down by, by the dense rock. And so yeah. we only find these atoms being produced at the very surface. And we are interested in measuring the looking at those atoms produced in the surface rocks over these long million year time scales. And so, and so you collected those rocks for those atoms. Yes. To see. Yeah. And it's it's a count thing. We're trying to see how many per whatever. Yeah. So the amount that we find there, um, it depends on what we're looking at. And so um, one of the, one of the things that controls how much there is is just how long those rocks have been sitting at the surface. Mm -hmm. um, for this particular research project, we are also looking at um, atoms of um, uh, helium, so an isotope of helium, helium-3. Um, and helium is interesting because it doesn't like to be in 
rocks or it doesn't like to be in minerals so it doesn't form bonds um, and it's going to have a tendency to diffuse out of the rock and mineral um, and so we are actually using that behavior this loss of helium that happens at surface temperatures to try and understand what the temperatures have been like in Antarctica while these rocks have been sitting at the surface. So ultimately we're trying to understand something about the past climate of Antarctica by looking at these very rare atoms that are produced in the surface. Okay. Yeah. And it, try to find something about climate. Um, are you trying to support a, a theory or are you just looking for evidence to what? Yeah, so uh, we are specifically trying to go back in time to look at a period called the Mid-Pliocene Warm Period. So this is a period of time about 3 to 3.3 million years ago um, when we think concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere were similar to today. Oh. Um, and so we think, yeah, it's the most recent time that that was the case. And so we think it is a good t period of time to look at, to think about kind of where our planet is headed. Um, we know that sea level was significantly higher during the mid-Pliocene, but one thing that we don't necessarily know is how warm Antarctica was. We don't have any ice core records that go that far back in time. Um, we have lots of marine records that go that far back in time, but we don't have any sort of uh, very good records from on land from Antarctica to tell us it was this much warmer in the, in the mid-Pliocene. So that's what we're hoping to try to learn. Yeah. Oh. And just by looking at counts of atoms and so like is going to you're going to be able to then understand how warm or cold it was? Yeah, so we're going to look at the helium, which is sensitive to temperature, and then we'll okay. also look at other um, cosmogenic nuclides. So these are the atoms that are produced by those reactions. So there are other, um, basically, flavors of cosmogenic nuclide that don't experience this temperature-dependent loss. So we'll look at both. So. Um, you know, the ones that aren't sensitive to temperature will tell us about how long the rocks have been sitting there, and then we use that information with the temperature-sensitive um, system to try and piece together what the what the climate was like while they've been exposed. Yeah. And uh, if a rock hadn't been, like if I dig one up in my backyard, why is that not a good sample for you? Um, well, for a couple of reasons. If you have to dig it up, it's been buried, right? So it's not been sitting at the surface accumulating these cosmogenic nuclides. Um, but then also, you know, one of the reasons why we're working in Antarctica is that it is very cold. And so we're looking at a system that is sensitive to, you know, near zero to sub-zero temperatures. And so um, that's another aspect of it. So it's cold enough in Antarctica. Um, even though the temperatures have changed um, and the exposures are long enough. Um, and there's one more thing I was going to mention. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. But yeah, those are the big things. <laughs> Fair enough. Cold enough. And, cold enough and, and they've been present long enough. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to collect those samples, what was the, what was a general day about, I mean, I, I, first of all, I just feel like that's such an extreme environment. Yeah. So. So it's cold there? <laughs> it was, it's pretty cold. We were there during the Southern Hemisphere summer, right? So uh, it was daylight 24-7, uh, which meant, which was good and bad. It meant you could basically work all the time, but it also meant that you could work all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so this was the first year, so uh, when we get to Antarctica, we're initially living in a research station called McMurdo Station that's managed by the U.S. government. Um, and 
the initial plan was to stay in McMurdo uh, for a few weeks while we completed all of our training, and then we were supposed to spend most of our time um, camping in the dry valleys to get most of our samples. Um, because this was the first year sort of returning back sort of full scale from the pandemic, there were lots of delays that we ended up encountering. Um, and so we actually ended up doing a lot of day trips by helicopter from McMurdo. Um, and we did end up camping in the end, but for a lot less time than we had anticipated. Um, so yeah, we could fly in a helicopter from McMurdo Station um, out to the dry valleys and back in a day. Um, and so we did that to access a lot of our sites. Um, and so for some of our sites, uh, we were uh, up at relatively high elevations, and those are places that are also exposed to the wind. Um, and so they're places you don't want to get stuck if the weather turns particularly bad. So on those days, uh, we had what we would call close support, where the helicopter basically didn't leave. It stayed with us, and that limited how much time we had in the field to do our work, which I can talk about in a second. And then there were other days where um, we were basically in a valley, a little bit more protected, and so the helicopter could drop us off and we could spend more time and then they could come get us uh, at the end of the day. And then we did do some work uh, from a camp. So we set up a camp um, in a place called the Western Olympus Range, and from there we were able to access a lot more sites by foot. Um, yeah. And then uh, sort of what the work looked like once we sort of got out there, um, we were collecting rock samples. So that's like, um, you know, get out your hammer and like your strong muscles and, and work on collecting these samples. Um, we wanted to get depth profiles. So we wanted to get samples that went at least um, 20 to 30 centimeters below the surface. So we were trying to excavate from bedrock these sort of shallow depth profiles. So it did take a lot of time to get those samples. So part of the team would do that. And then um, we also set up these small, basically weather stations at each of our sites that stayed out for a few months, um, collecting information about the local weather conditions and also about the rock temperature conditions. And so the other half of the team would spend their time setting up these little weather stations, yeah. But how do you how do you collect and get the rock here without changing it? Ooh. I'm thinking the helium wants to yeah. escape. So yeah. you throw it. I mean, throw it. Throw it in your backpack, drag it through, and it's hit 70, 80 degrees <laughs> in your backpack. By the time you hit your, I mean, so how do you actually do that? Yeah. So the helium is not diffusing that fast, okay. but we did worry about, um, because usually rock samples coming from Antarctica, they, they come by ship, they come on a vessel, and usually they're not considered temperature sensitive, so they would be put on like the deck of a, of a ship in a shipping container, yeah. and that has to cross the equator to get here. So the concern was they could get pretty hot on their way here. So we did have the ability to say we wanted them to be kept frozen. So for example, like same, they were shipped in the same way that an ice core would be shipped. So they were kept, kept frozen for the, for the journey up here. Um, and we are trying to, you know, keep, obviously we're going to have to do some processing to them before we actually make measurements on them in the lab. And that's not going to happen in a very cold environment, but um, the amount of time that they'll be exposed to sort of ambient conditions here in West Lafayette is not going to be significant enough to affect the helium. It's long time scales over which that's going to, the geologic time scales over okay. which that's going to matter. Um, but we are keeping them in a freezer here for like 
good practice. So trying to keep them cold so that if somebody in the future wanted to make measurements oh. that were, you know, it was important that they had been kept cold, we're keeping them cold. Now, do you take part of a sample and let it warm up to see if there's differences? Or it's just like, no, we know this science, we know what'll change, so. Yeah, it won't change, like in, in the in the lab, like in these ambient conditions. Um, in order to get the helium out that we want to measure, we do heat up the rocks. So we use, um, in my lab, we heat things up using a laser system. So we'll basically take um, the mineral grains that we want to measure the helium in, wrap them in some sort of metal that couples well with this laser that we have, and then we use the laser to heat them up. But then we're heating them up to like 500 to 800 degrees Celsius. Oh. So much, much hotter than room temperature conditions to try and get all that helium out very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how are you measuring that? So um, I have a mass spectrometry lab here uh, in the Earth, and Earth Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences Department. So. We extract the gas with the laser, um, and we do that in an uh, ultra-high vacuum, so very, very, very low pressure, so there's basically no other gas around. So we extract the gas with the laser, and then we clean it up. So when you heat up a rock sample, helium will come out, but all sorts of other things that might be present in the rock will come out. Ones that we worry about are carbon dioxide and water. Um, and so we have ways to basically scrub those reactive gases out. Mm -hmm. And then we actually freeze the helium again. So we have a, a cryogenic trap that we take down to, for helium, we'll take it down to between 11 and 14 Kelvin. So oh, that'll wow. freeze the helium, basically. And then we can raise the temperature slightly to 33 Kelvin. And at 33, the helium will be released, but everything else will be kept frozen. Um, and then we can inlet just the helium into our mass spectrometer. And our mass spectrometer is a way to take those helium atoms, turn them into ions, basically take away one of their electrons, um, and then we can uh, accelerate those ions and count how many of those ions are present. Yeah. Wow. And so it's, I, I, I mean, I assume you have some very elaborate classification system for each rock you got and exactly how many millimeters below mm -hmm. the ground it was, mm -hmm. and so you know all of that. Yep, yep, yeah. We will, I mean, we'll have to take samples over some depth average, so, but yeah, we could subsample if we wanted to at the millimeter scale. We probably won't do it that finely, but yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And how big is the sample that you're exploding with your lasers? Uh, so with the laser, what we actually heat up is going to be really small. Um, we're hoping that we'll actually be able to do the measurements on individual uh, grains of the mineral quartz. So think about like a grain of sand. Mm -hmm. um, this could be possible both because we have a, a new instrument that is really sensitive, um, but then also because these rocks have been sitting at the surface for a very, very long time. They've got a lot of helium, even though they've lost some of their helium. Mm -hmm. And so um, we could, we're going to attempt to do it on pieces as small as like a single grain of sand. Um, normally, for a normal measurement, we might do a couple hundred grains of sand together. Um, but yeah, but it would be cool if we could do it on single grains. It hasn't been done before. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> yes. I mean, learning from the past from a single grain of sand. Man. Wow. Yeah. Pretty, pretty big sand, though. Yeah. <laughs> are, is this a, are you collaborating with other 
scientists on this research? Yes. Uh, so this project involves um, Daryl Granger, who's okay. also here at Purdue, mm -hmm. and also did an early podcast with that yes, yes. Yeah. Um So Daryl is also involved in the project, and so we'll measure the non-helium cosmogenic nuclides working with Daryl. Okay. That's kind of what his lab is uh, specialized in doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I'm also working with Dr. Jennifer Lamp. She is at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. Um, and she's the one who's dealing with all the weather station data that we're collecting. Um, she, she also measures cosmogenic nuclides, but has also specialized in looking at how um, temperature effects actually affect rates of rock erosion and weathering processes. And so she's done a lot of work, and she's been to Antarctica many, many times. So I was very lucky that she came into the field with me because I would have been... Uh, struggling as a first-time uh, leader in the field with without her. Um, so um, she's also involved in the project. And then uh, I have another collaborator who's at the Berkeley Geochronology Center, or who was at the Berkeley Geochronology Center, Greg Balco. Um, and his postdoc came into the field with us. His postdoc, Dr. Marie Bergelin, was in the field with us. And she was great. She also had Antarctic experience um, and was very excited to be back in the field. So, yeah. Nice. All right, last question. Where do you buy a coat that's going to survive Antarctica? Oh, that's good. Uh, the answer is you don't. <laughs> so one of the great things about the U.S. Antarctic program is that a lot of the specialized gear that you need, we call it extreme cold weather gear, is provided to you. So we flew to New Zealand. It took a very long time to get to New Zealand, but then once you get to New Zealand, the U.S. Antarctic program has um, a facility there where you go and you try on all of your extreme cold weather gear. So you try on the red parka, you try on the, um, the coveralls, and you make sure that you have all of the gear that's going to fit you and keep you warm in the field. So yeah, I didn't have to provide my own coat, okay. which is good. Well, <laughs> that's a great question. That? Yeah. I don't know. Go to your local mall and start shopping. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? I've noticed some coats, they've started rating them. Like, it's rated for, you know, down to between 3 degrees and 15 degrees Fahrenheit. But, I, I mean, I don't, you know. Yeah, these coats are very expensive, and so they definitely reuse them from, from year to year. That's really yeah. cool. Mm -hmm. but, well, that's very neat. Yeah. Well, thank you for enlightening us some yeah. on Antarctica. Yes. Learning from grains of sand. <laughs> Thanks and, for having yeah. me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down!